John chapter 15, carefully, carefully cultivated vineyards um, have historically been symbols of health and prosperity for landowners and have been seen by outsiders for their beauty. Since the earliest days of human history, people have been eager to consume wine produced by the best vineyards. Isaiah chapter 27 verses 2 and 3 says this, In that day sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. Here in this passage, Isaiah 27, God compares his people to a vineyard, and not just any vineyard, but a vineyard of red wine. Red wine was often seen as a symbol of excellence in Scripture. To keep a vineyard healthy, um, a couple of things need to be done, right? First, it needs to be cultivated. The vines need to be pruned and watered. The soil must be properly developed and prepared. But it also needs to be guarded from animals that would trample it, or insects or birds that will eat the fruit. A cultivated vineyard left unprotected cannot flourish. A couple of years ago, uh, Wesley was working as a helper at a vineyard that's just west of here. They planted the vines about five or six years earlier and were expecting their first major crop of grapes. Um, But because of some, I guess we could say, inexperience, they didn't know that they needed to cover the fruit with nets. And so as a result, the birds ate nearly all of the, what, have, what would have been their first harvest. An experienced vine dresser, probably, we assume, would have known this and would have been prepared. And the truth is, is that it takes years of hard work and care for the vine to produce the desired fruit. So today, as we continue now in our study of the gospel according to John, we come to the, to the seventh and final I am statement that Jesus makes in this book, in John's gospel. It's a statement that's been sometimes, <coughs> excuse me, sometimes misinterpreted, sometimes confused by some over the, over the years of people reading the Bible, but it's a statement that's rich in It's rich in his care. It's rich in Christ's concern, as well as it's, of course, another perfect illustration of the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the people of God. So, if you're not already there, in John chapter 15, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 17, and we're going to be focusing on Kind of the first five or six verses today, but really just the first couple. Um, we're going to really zero in on this first I am statement. So let's, let's read John 15, verses 1 through 17. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to me be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." Let's stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear as we understand, as we come to see here, the true vine, the vine dresser, and our connection to Christ. Help us to understand that your name might be praised. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you... Um, if you just look at the last sentence of chapter 14, you can see that there seems to be some sort of um, transition between verse, chapters 14 and 15. Um, Jesus says to his disciples there in that, just that last sentence of chapter 14, he says, rise, let us go from here. But then as chapter 15 begins, uh, he, he's still speaking. He's still teaching them. The next kind of geographical marker uh, is really not until the beginning of chapter 18. As they cross, it says, the, the Kidron Brook, and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's likely that this conversation continued as they walked out of Jerusalem, as they walked through the vineyards that were all over the region. There are points along the way where the, the Mount of, uh, to, they were headed towards the Mount of Olives. There are points along the way where they, have, uh, they would have had views of the Temple Mount as they looked back on the city. Depending on how dark it was, how much they could see, we're not sure. Jesus has already referred to himself as the true Temple of Israel all the way back in chapter 2. And now as they, as they pass by the vineyards, he seems to be making another connection for them. Now, I want to be careful here not to teach something that's, that isn't here, but it's very possible 
that, that they were walking past or through vineyards as he's making these comments about this verse uh, or about this concept, about the vine, the branches, and the fruit. And the reason I want us to have that image in our minds is because this, this really happened. This was a real conversation at a real time and place, and, and I think it happened as they were walking past vineyards which kind of helps it to make a little bit more sense as to why he uses this illustration. Or maybe we could say why he walked them through there at that time so that he could say this to them. They could hear the gravel crunching under their shoes as they walked along. They could see the landscape around them. They could feel the cool night air. They could smell the foliage and the fruit. And Jesus says to them, I am the true vine. And he says this, probably, as they're walking toward the spot of his arrest. As they're walking toward the place of his betrayal. This gives a bit of, a bit of imminence. This illustrates the growing tension in the moment, in these chapters. It won't be long now before Jesus is sweating drops of blood as he prays. It won't be long now until his disciple Judas will walk up to him and greet him with an unholy kiss, a kiss of betrayal. It won't be long now until the shepherd is struck and the sheep are scattered. But remember, Jesus' instructions for his disciples in these chapters, these chapters that we often call the, the upper room discourse, they are meant to bring comfort for their fears, for the fears of his followers. He has and he continues to lay out promises and blessings for them. And he also encourages their obedience and, and he explains their duties. He explains their, their obligations during his absence. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now before we continue... Let me give you three questions to ask as we work through this. Um, because remember, this passage really can be kind of tricky at times to understand. And, and actually, these are three questions that uh, really we could ask of any passage of Scripture. But for us here today, they seem especially appropriate. And I'm going to tell you that we're not going to answer all three of them today. You may have to do a little bit of work in your own mind to come up with some of the answers, but I want you to keep these questions in mind as we walk through this. The first one is just simply this. What does this teach us about Jesus? What is his statement here? I am the true vine, and the words that follow after that, what does this teach us about Jesus? Secondly, what does this teach us about the Father? He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, and then he then he goes on, especially in verse 2, to explain some of the Father's work. So what does it teach us about the work of the Father? And then the third one, and I wasn't quite sure how to word this one, so really I just kind of came up with this. What does this teach us about humanity, believers and unbelievers? What does this teach us about believers? What does this teach us about unbelievers? What does this teach us about followers of Jesus Christ? What does this teach us about, really, humanity as we work through this? So keep those in mind. 
We're really going to be focused on that first question today because of that statement right there in verse 1, that most important statement in this passage, I am the true vine. I said earlier that this is the seventh and, and the final of what we call Jesus' I am statements. And as we, we've seen this, as we've walked through John's gospel, but we understand these statements to be claims of deity. He is claiming for himself the name that God revealed to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. If you remember this passage, Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What do I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus lays out these seven I am statements that clearly identify Jesus as God and Messiah, beginning really in chapter 6 when he says, I am the bread of life. Later he will say, I am the light of the world. Then he will say, I am the door or the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now he comes to, I am the true vine. Now when you think over those statements, some of them are more um, kind of literal than others. So I'm thinking here of two specifically, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. By literal, I mean some of them are more um, spiritual. They're all spiritual, but I think you'll see what I mean as we walk through this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he also says, I am the resurrection and the life. So compare that to the others that are a little bit more kind of illustrative. What I mean by that is that Jesus picks up on some, some common things and he makes them illustrations of what he is saying. So, so I am the bread of life. Bread, light, door, shepherd, vine. All common things that the people of Israel and really even us today, we all know what those things are. We all depend on those things. And especially with this statement, this final one here, I am the true vine. Jesus comes back to this agrarian theme, agricultural theme, like he did when he said, I am the good shepherd, or I am the door to the sheepfold, the gate. So then it was about sheep keeping. Now it is about vine tending. But sometimes when we read John 15 by itself, we miss the connection that I believe Jesus intends for us to see. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, he says to his disciples. That's what he says in verse 5. But as he begins in verse 1, he's much more specific. He says, I am the true vine, the true vine. 
Jesus is, is once again comparing himself with something that has come before him. So, so I alluded to this already. But, but listen to John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus answers them. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But then John clarifies for us. John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, hold on to that one and listen to John chapter 6, verse 32 to 35. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. My Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus is the true temple, he says in John chapter 2. He's the true dwelling place of God with his people. John, John 1 tells us that. He's the true place to come to God to worship him. He's the true way to God. No one comes to the Father except through him. And Jesus is the true manna from heaven with which God feeds and sustains his people, giving them life, eternal life, true life. So you can see, I think, where this is going. He says, I am the true vine. He's the true temple. He's the true bread. We could go on with the illustrations, but he says here, I am the true vine. Throughout the Old Testament, the vine is a common symbol for the people of Israel, for the covenant people of God. So, for example, the psalmist, he, he looks back on their history and he records this for us. Flip back to Psalm 80. We're going to be here just a little bit today. Turn back to Psalm 80. I want to read just verses 7 through 16. Psalm 80, verse 7 says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your, face, uh, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Or think of 
just hold your finger there. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But in Isaiah chapter 5, let me read a couple more verses, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. We could continue throughout the Old Testament with illustrations comparing God's people, Israel, with a vine. Jeremiah, Ezekiel also use this same imagery many times, actually. And then Hosea. Hosea will say in a very straightforward manner in Hosea 10, verses 1 and 2, he says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Now, if you noticed, all of these passages had an element of judgment in them. So God planted a vine, it flourished, but then it yielded, as Isaiah says, wild grapes, and is broken down and then devoured. So go back to that first one in Psalm 80, first passage I read. And listen to the prayer of the psalmist. I only read part of this. Pick it up again in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Whenever whenever historic Israel is referred to in this way as a vine... It's the vine's failure to produce good fruit that's emphasized. So the the vine grows wild grapes, and so it will face God's judgment. It'll be torn down and, and trampled and burned. And throughout the Old Testament, the vine is a failure. 
And so God stops causing the rain to fall upon it. He causes briars and thorns to, to grow up. And in contrast to the failures of the first vine, that vine in Psalm 80 says, says that the Lord brought out of Egypt and, and drove out the nations and planted it. Jesus says, in contrast to that, I am the true vine. He's, he's the one to whom Israel pointed. And so when the psalmist says there, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. He is the true son that God has made strong for God himself. So for these Jews, his disciples, they're all Jewish those who, who held to the promises of God. To, for these covenant people, Paul says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. To those who have, who have faithfully come to the temple to worship. For those who have faithfully worked hard at keeping God's law and and watched and waited for the coming Messiah, if they wish to remain part of God's chosen vine, they must be rightly connected to Jesus, the true vine. Their heritage will not save them. Their keeping of the law and the sacrifices will not save them. Their circumcision will not save them. They must be connected to the true vine of Jesus Christ himself. So what does it mean to be connected? Well, John likes these metaphors. And he wrote back in chapter 1 this. He said, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Simply put, it means to believe in his name. Belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It means running from your sin and running to Christ for redemption, for salvation, for adoption as sons. I am the true vine, Jesus says. Even in this simple statement, even in those, those simple what five words, I am the true vine, we can see a couple of important truths, aspects of Jesus' person and his work. Two truths about this, this true vine. First, we can see the condition of the true vine. When Jesus became incarnate, when he, when he came in the flesh and, and even made this claim, he took upon himself the failures and the sinful condition of his covenant people. Or just to be clear, he's about to do this on the cross, right? See, remember the condition of the vine. Let me read to you another passage, Ezekiel 15, verses 2 to 6 says this, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? 
Think about that for a moment. Do you make anything with the wood of the vine? Do people take a peg to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then in chapter 19 of Ezekiel, we read these words. Your mother was like a vine in a vineyard planted by the water, fruitful, full of branches, by reason of abundant water. Its strong stems became rulers' scepters. It towered aloft among the thick boughs. It was seen at its height with the mass of its branches, but the vine was plucked up in fury and cast to the ground. The east wind dried up its fruit. They were stripped off and withered. As for its strong stem, fire consumed it. Now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from the stem of its shoots, has consumed its fruit, so that there remains in it no strong stem, no scepter for ruling. By the time Christ comes, the vine is only worthy of being uprooted, thrown to the ground, stripped of its fruit, and consumed by fire. So let's leave behind the imagery for a minute. The people of God had abandoned God. He had given them everything, and they loved their sin more than they loved him. So after sending prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, that's what Ezekiel's doing, that's what Jeremiah does, that's what uh, Isaiah does, Hosea, the prophet after prophet after prophet, to warn them to turn back to him to no avail, he finally sent his son. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the true vine. And as the true vine, he took on the punishment spoken of there in Ezekiel. He was, as the imagery goes, uprooted, thrown to the ground, stripped of his fruit, and consumed by fire. Or to say it without using the imagery, he became sin and the wages of sin is death. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I am the true vine. And the true vine took on the cast aside-ness of the first vine. The second aspect of Christ's person and work that we can see here, the kind of the second truth about this vine that this teaches us is the quality of the true vine. The quality. Jesus, the true vine, has accomplished everything that the Israel vine was unable to accomplish. Christ, the true vine, thrives and bears fruit. So let's answer this first question. What does this teach us about Jesus? Well, for one thing, listen with new ears to that psalm about the vineyard. But first, before we go back to Psalm 80... I want to remind you of Matthew chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15, okay? 
I think you'll be able to put these things together. So Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15 says this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, that is Jesus and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now listen again to Psalm 80, verses, just verses 7 through 11. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Can you see it? So let's talk about the father for a moment. God, the Father, is frequently seen in the Scriptures as a farmer or as a gardener tending his vine. We've seen that in the passages we've read. And verse 2 here in John 15, verse 2 teaches us about the work of the vine dresser in this analogy. But as we move the illustration here along, we're also introduced to another character, the branch or branches. So jump down and and look at verse 5. So now we're back in John 15. Jump down, just look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is telling us very plainly in this analogy. He's telling his disciples, you are the branches. You, the eleven, those remaining believers. You are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. So zoom back out for just a second. Think about this big picture again. This illustration helps to explain the nature of the relationship between the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. And you could pretty easily see the, the interconnectedness of all three. You can see the dependence that we have in the, in the father and the son and, and the relationship of one to another. So let's make a couple of observations. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here's the first observation. Jesus says right there that the branches are in me. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, he says, that is in the true vine. As you know, um, and as Jesus makes this clear as this all unfolds, connection to the vine is essential for the continued existence of the branches. Connection to the vine is essential for the fruitfulness of the branches. Branches only bear fruit because they are connected to the vine. If they're not connected to the vine, they wither up and die, right? You can see where this is going, I hope. You can see pretty clearly the analogy. You can think of the plants. 
But you can also see that this is talking about Christ and his people. But the second observation is that the vine dresser tends to the branches based on their production of fruit. Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now at this point, we need to make a little bit of a brief excursus. I feel like we've kind of been all over the place this morning, but I'm hoping that this will tie together in, your, in, in our minds today. So allow me to just sort of digress for just a moment. My guess is that you probably have an idea of what the fruit is that Jesus is talking about here. After all, the book of Titus tells us, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. But let me make another connection that you might not be thinking of. Jesus has just promised in chapter 14 to leave them with another helper, paraclete, he says. He has just promised to give them the Holy Spirit who will teach them and bring his teachings to their remembrance. And so this fruit that he is talking about is the result of the Spirit of God working in the life of the believer. Romans chapter 7 verse 4 tells us that Christians are saved in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul's prayer for the Colossians. When he hears of their faith, he he prays this. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then he gets very specific for those, those foolish Galatians, as he calls them. He says this to the Galatians, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. The works of the flesh are evidence that a person is not attached to the true vine. Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God will not inherit the kingdom of God. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Jump down and look at verse 6 there, John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In scriptural language, fruit is the natural outgrowth of being connected to the true vine. It's the natural product of your salvation. It is your sanctification. You're growing in Christ-likeness, in holiness. Romans chapter 6 tells us that, it is, that this is our sanctification, the fruit growing in our lives. And so if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control do not mark your life in some measure you very well may not be joined to Christ. Do you, do people around you, see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do they see those things? If you claim Christ, if you have said, I believe, that answer should be an honest and a humble yes. You should be um, identifying an increasing righteousness, an increasing peace, an increasing joy in your life. Romans 14 verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. And I want to be clear here as we finish. I asked you those three questions to consider as we work through this. What does this teach us about Jesus? What does this teach us about the Father? What does this teach us about us? Let me answer all of them like this. We're not talking about a works-based salvation. You can only fake the fruit of the Spirit for so long. You can only fake patience for so long, right? You can only fake kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control for so long. And you can't fool the vine dresser. So here's the point. The fruit is the work of the Spirit, not the work of you. If you're a believer... The reason you have the fruit is because you are in Christ and the Father is pruning and carefully and lovingly nurturing you with the bread of life and the water of His Word. As you've grown, because of the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit, you've begun to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and even self-control. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, colon, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with Uh, and patience and with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance with the saints of light. That's what Paul proclaims in Colossians. So I'm going to leave you with that. What does this teach us about Jesus? What does this teach us about the Father? What does this teach us about us? It teaches us that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are doing this. If we have believed, if we have been filled with the Spirit, if we have come to Christ, the fruit of the Spirit working in our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And those things will abound as we are growing in Christ, as our fruit is being produced, and as God the Father is pruning, disciplining us. Let's pray. Father, it is my prayer that these things would be, um, these fruit would be growing in our lives, in each of us. That not only would the fruit of the Spirit mark Logansville Church as a whole, but it would mark each of us individually as we are growing in each of these things. Father, it is my prayer that we would understand that, yes, we have work to do in our sanctification but that it begins with Christ and the work that he has done. And that it is he who began that good work who will be faithful to complete it. And so I pray that your spirit would continue to produce fruit in our lives. That it would continue to produce not only the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the knowledge of you as we grow in our knowledge and understanding you, as we grow closer to you, as our minds become conformed to the image of our Christ. Lord, I pray that we would begin to understand these things and that we would look to the true vine, the one that you have called out of Egypt and planted, the vine to whom we look, we receive shade and sustenance, that we can look upon the beauty of Jesus Christ with love and adoration and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.